Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. I'm Laura. And today's episode is on rejection. I guess we should probably start by thinking about what it means to feel rejection. What do you think, Laura? Well, I think um, rejection is a really interpersonal kind of feeling. Like rejection is a disconnection or like being severed from other people. Like it's a feeling that is produced by other people's disappointment or dissatisfaction or judgment. And that's a really hard thing because we're social beings and it's one thing to feel guilt or shame or like dissatisfaction at yourself. And it's another thing to be judged by another in a way that affects your well-being mm-hmm. or your status. Rejection in some ways is like a complete uh, affront to your person and you experience it as a flaw in your being. It's it's very intense. So that's to me what makes rejection a really difficult emotion to navigate. Recently, there's been kind of a discussion of rejection as, like, an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right, and I... Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> when rejection can be so damaging to you as a person, it's hard to reimagine it in that way where you need rejection to become successful. So that kind of narrative is really strange to me, and I wonder if you have any thoughts about that. I don't know. I mean, I think fundamentally rejection is about the, the confrontation between the self and the ego, the imagined self and the ego, the core self and the ego, and what we want and what we can't have. And so I, I think when I think about rejection, I really think about the uncovering of false selves and expectations and dangerous attachments. And I think about what happens when people point out our own limitations to ourselves or things that they want that we didn't know that they wanted or all of these myriad ways in which we negotiate um, our needs and our desires with other people when they come into conflict, you know? I don't like this. I don't want that. That's not how I feel. That's not what I thought. I assumed that. We should have. All of those partial statements are statements that imply, you know, that there is a, just like you said, a disconnect between the self and the other. My problem is that I think a lot of people read those as irrevocable or uncrossable chasms when they mostly are not. At the interpersonal level, at least, I think that most of the miscommunications that feel like rejection are not that. <laughs> I think they are mostly just people trying to figure out how to find a vocabulary to negotiate their needs when they are in conversation with another person's needs or wants, and especially when they come into conflict. But I, I think most of the things that people understand as rejection aren't actually rejection. So the idea that you can turn perhaps professional rejection into success I mean, I think that all successful people have faced a lot of rejection, for sure, and they learn to overcome it. And I actually think that there's some useful stuff to be said about their ability to strip their ego from being over-invested in things that don't matter as much, you know? I don't know that it's terrible to say people who've succeeded 
have felt rejection, but it depends on what the definition of success is. If the definition of success is they have built a strong foundation for their sense of self, then that's cool. But if the problem is like, well, if you want to succeed in the workplace, how to succeed, you know? And people who succeed in the workplace, they've felt, re I mean, you know, that, that there's something about that that just is, is ridiculous and hyper-masculine and corporate. Well, there, there are different kinds of rejection, right? Rejections like, you're not right for me, or you're not right for this job, or you're not able to complete X or Y. And then there are rejections like, I don't agree with who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. Homosexuality is wrong. Yeah, right. Totally. <laughs> you know, Why are you or, such a feminazi? Right. Uh -huh. Barack Obama is a Muslim. So some types of rejections, I think, are harder to swallow than others. One in which maybe you're not able to achieve something with one person, or you're not able to yeah. accomplish something in one job. And then another thing, another type of rejection where you're outright disregarded by someone or a group of people. And it turns out sometimes that group of people is larger than you might imagine. Sometimes that group of people are able to gain a lot of power and influence. And so when does rejection become something that, when does it become something that's dangerous on a large scale? a societal scale, a political scale, and when does it become something you have to worry about? When you have to worry about your your beliefs or your self-depiction or your self-expression? I mean, I talk a lot about power existing on three levels, the interpersonal, the institutional, and the structural level. I think that most people don't see the way in which the decisions that they make function in each of those registers independently or simultaneously and so it's hard for them to manage the interpersonal when the structural is so looming so especially because we have such an overworked culture and we talk about that all the time on lean back about this like constant pressure to perform and the 24-hour work cycle and overworking as a cultural norm uh, it seems to me that the structural imperative to understand rejection as a corporate function of capital is predominant, which is why it makes me so sad that in the interpersonal people takes things so seriously and they see minor conflicts as total rejections or they can't see the truth in someone's rejection as an expression of incompatibility or dissatisfaction or whatever. So I guess I, guess I think that Rejection is a, is a hard thing to process from a structural perspective because what happens when you lose your job and you're supposed to be the breadwinner? What happens when the culture says that your value is tied to your identity as it is expressed through your labor and then you get fired or downsized or automation takes your job or the economy shifts and you don't have the skills or the education to participate? That kind of rejection is what foments the kinds of tea party, you know, wackadoo, language to overcome what really is also a bunch of white supremacy and sexism, which is also about rejection as a sexual object at the top of the hierarchy of power. And then at the interpersonal level, I think people churn through rejection and hold on to rejection, and that's where bitterness comes from. And I have to think, of like, in the entire emotional register of the way that people behave, 
I think bitterness is the emotion that I find the most loathsome because it seems generally self-indulgent to me. And I say that as somebody who studies like structural violence for a living. But bitterness, wrath, I understand. Wrath is when you transform your suffering into action. But bitterness is when you just hold on to rejection and you indulge yourself in reliving that rejection over and over and over and over again. And insofar as people can free themselves from suffering by transforming themselves through it, I think bitterness is the worst part of the expression of, re you know, rejection. It is, but in some cases it can be difficult to escape oh, bitter yeah. bitterness. Because sure. we've talked about these different levels of rejection. And when you're participating in a society whose operation and whose values reject you as a person, how can you not be bitter? I have friends who are trans mm -hmm. that are very bitter, openly so, and I mean, their day-to-day -day existence <laughs> is one of suffering sure. because of extreme bitterness because they live in a society and in a culture that does not rejects value them. them. Yeah, yeah, totally. Rejects them. And I mean, I don't want to compare suffering, but even living within capitalism where you work day in and day out, if you're leaning in as a woman <laughs> and you work to achieve a certain goal and you're constantly undermined and you're constantly rejected and it's not achievable in the first place, you take punch after punch. I mean, bitterness, I think, is a, an obvious outcome to that. I'm not saying that it's that it's the right impulse, but it's justifiable, oh, certainly. Yeah. It's understandable. It's legible completely. I feel like the American culture and a lot of the West is stunted there. It's stunted there because the thing that we produce and export is violence and the thing that we internalize is violence. So... I understand at the interpersonal level how that violence is transformed into bitterness. I do. I get it. But ultimately, to move forward, if we move from bitterness to justice, and that absolutely entails the transformation of that bitterness and the holding on of that suffering into wrath and positive social change. There's just no other way around it. So you're right. You're describing a phenomenon that is totally understandable and it's justifiable because of the way in which structural violence permeates like literally every facet of American life. And yet on the other hand, from sort of a more humanist or spiritual side, either one of them, it seems to me that bitterness does not transform anything it's not a transformative emotion and the harder we cling to capital the less likely we are to transform things so for me that's why I said I think it depends on how we define success because I feel like there are a lot of intellectual traditions that embrace poverty and charity and suffering as a transformative space that is not bitter and that is full of joy and that is a space of release from the kinds of expectations that cause the rejection and the bitterness in the first place. So even if we don't embrace all of them wholesale, like I'm, this is not a conversion narrative, I think that there are lessons to learn there about our orientation towards suffering and how we and how we articulate it and how we use it as emotional energy, as rhetorical or political potential, you know?
I think it's smart that you're using the word transformation because I think a lot of people think of progress in really individualistic ways mm. in terms of personal achievements, in terms of social gain or gains in wealth. And I like that you're using the word transformation because I think that is an actual way to respond to rejection. There's a mythology that rejection is an important part of success. Edison had 99 light bulbs, yeah, <laughs> you know, right, like right. iterations of the light bulb before one actually worked. And there's a lot of narratives like that where people failed. Bill Gates dropped out of college before he started Microsoft. But it's all man's stories. Like Michael right. Jordan got cut from his high school basketball exactly. team. Right. I mean, it's just maddening. Yeah. So that's not the right way to, I think, frame, no. frame rejection uh -uh. because you don't hear the stories of people who like, lean in or work really hard or fail and fail and fail and actually never succeed. You don't hear that. But it is, it is possible to have failures on those like personal and social levels and still work towards transformation collectively. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important way to frame rejection. Because if you think about it as something that affects you as an individual and as something that affects your personal achievement and your personal goals, mm -hmm. I think it's insulting to think that rejection is like a stepping stone to success when really it allows you to identify with other people because rejection is a part of being human. Yeah. And it allows you to identify with other people and then identify what you can do together. I mean, you know, if we're going to go to the interpersonal level, my gut, whenever I feel rejected or I have done a rejecting thing is then either hardcore love or massive humor. So I, I mean, those are my, my gut response is to be like, this is not important. <laughs> this thing that just happened in the scheme of things is so wholly unimportant. Here's the way to reimagine the moment in light of, you know, the day, the year, our relationship, you know, whatever conflict we're resolving. It just seems to me that because the culture is so hyper-violent, people just don't develop the skills to either reject in ways that are transformative or handle rejections in ways that are transformative. And so that makes them susceptible to fear mongering and paranoia and a lot of societal impulses that keep them very, very static. And so, you know, I, I have seen so many people stay in abusive marriages. Oh my gosh. And why don't they leave? Because <laughs> the fear of the unknown is greater. And the ability to imagine freedom is, is completely constrained by a desire for a stable, static, predictable kind of space in the world. And it's unreasonable to feel bitter about not having that. Nobody has that. You know, I'm always thinking, I think a lot of people are about death and about people just, everybody just dies alone. That's reasonable, but yo, you gotta get into, you gotta like get real with that. That's a real thing that's going to happen. And so the only person who gets to decide how you manage your response to stimulus outside of yourself is you. That's a real thing. That isn't to say that the state doesn't have responsibility for being, you know, sponsoring violence. Of course they do, and they should be held accountable, and that's how you transform your suffering into wrath. But I just think that a lot of people do not have the 
social skills and the intellectual tools to be able to use rejection in creative ways that are not about suffering, but that are about play or that are about passion or that are about overcoming or that are about, you know, reorienting their imagination. It's hard, though, because... I'm not judging them for not having them. The culture does not supply them. Right. But well, I'm just saying, like, that's the journey of humanity. It's right. like, you act- those are actually skill sets you actually have to, should be pursuing. Like, that should be a conversation. Mm-hmm. I understand that there's, there are reasons people don't have those. You know, I, think, I think I have a hard time um, using rejection in a productive way like that because I see institutions and the culture using rejection in a manipulative way sometimes like well but now we're now we're jumping though we were talking about the interpersonal level and now we can jump to the structural and i and i don't i agree with you i feel like structural rejection is about manipulating capital where people's feelings are completely not part of the equation i mean that's just brute force violence that's what that is that's not rejection that's like, hey, you know, we really like you as a worker and also the other 400 people in the five departments that we manage. We're just going to lay you all off forever, though. But it's it's just, it's not about who you are as a person. That's not about, that's not personal. That's not rejection. That's shifting capital in ways that benefit the top 1%. That's not rejection. And I think that you're right. That structural, when people fail in structural spaces or feel like they do... Often it's not because of their own impetus. It's not like I did a shitty job and then 400 of us got laid off. But that's how it feels. It feels like people are rejected because they can't read the levels of power that are, you know, operating around them at any given time. And so the feelings of rejection, you know, from a lover and the feelings of rejection when you get laid off are similar registers in the body. They're similar similar corporeal experiences. And so they get latched onto one another, scaffolded onto one another, and so then people can't distinguish between structural violence and interpersonal rejection, and so then the interpersonal rejection feels manifoldly larger, magnified. What is is it then when you thrive when other people are rejected? Like when you get the promotion because... That's wrong. It is wrong, Um, but I I feel like it's an important part of this conversation because Mm. one part of rejection is that it prizes one person's feelings over another's. And I feel like, (laughs) I feel like there's a loss of intimacy. I feel like we're really involved with our own needs and interests. And I feel like rejection is a really big part of that. You know, like to look after yourself at the expense of other people in a way that like, completely disregards other people's worldviews. Yeah. As a structural thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. In in a way that uh, disregards people's, like, actual livelihoods and well-being if it benefits you. And that is so terrible. That's the political moment we're living in. Whether it's the repeal of the Affordable Care Act or shoving guns onto campuses even though faculty, administrators, staff, and students don't want them. I mean, all of that is about forcible destruction of culture for the self-aggrandizing of a very small number of people. That's violence. That's exploitation is total political violence. And that's a real thing. But in terms of how people withstand the day-to-day interactions in their community with people who live around them that they see at the grocery store, that they're sleeping with, or whatever, it seems to me that 
when I am asked to give advice about interpersonal conflict as it reflects and refracts larger structural violence, my advice is always to take time, to slow down, to take space, to hold space and then come back when you can to reassess things from a different perspective. So I'm all about leaning back from the object of ire or dissatisfaction or conflict or fear or rage or sadness or disappointment and spinning the object so that it reflects and refracts emotions in ways that might create opportunities for transformation. And I feel like I do that with politics too. So I feel like I can look at a political football and think, okay, here are all of the dimensions in which it's enlightening or enraging people and how can we turn that football in ways that magnify the joy and minimize the pain. So in some ways they're similar activities. You know, the transformative part is similar at both ends. But I agree with you that to wield power, you know, is fundamentally in a lot of ways an anti-intimacy act. That's why I don't think I'll be a politician. (laughs) (laughs) It is. Um, And I obviously think rejection on that interpersonal level is vile. But I also understand how it can be productive. Yeah, (laughs) it can be. Um, But I don't mean productive as a form of capital. Exactly. I I hesitated about using (laughs) the word productive. I know I said That's why I swooped in. (laughs) I hesitate about using that word because I I want to reject the idea of productivity. And I want to reject the practical and the efficient and the profitable. Right. And I actually want to use the word reject. Because I feel like it has that, like, virulence and that intensity. Uh, Even though I think, like... Rejection is something you should never do to another person. But you can do it to ideas for sure. I definitely (laughs) want to do it to ideas all the time. But it's, yeah. (laughs) That's an okay thing. But yes. But to capitalism, like, bye. Boy, bye. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. Um. (laughs) Well, that's why I think, you know, the leaning back interpersonally for me is good because it creates space to reassess. Because I think that, you know, we have a nervous system that we can't always control and we have habits that we can't easily correct and we have information that is always incomplete and we have tools that are always in process of forming so it seems to me you know there as especially as I get older I'm very very good at cutting people out like with a scalpel but I'm also really good at giving lots of space to reassess you know a formation that has emerged between myself and another in ways that I think minimize the long-term damage and create much more accessible spaces for transformation, for justice, for thoughtful engagement, for play. So my, you know, I've talked about this in earlier episodes. I talked about it at length, I think, in the play episode that I just feel like play is the way to push back against rejection always, whether it's rejection of capital or if it's rejection of the state or whether it's rejection of interpersonal you know misunderstandings it's hard to say that about physical violence but even then I mean as somebody who studies social movements 
all social movements have elements of play. I was talking in classroom about, and I think, was I talking about this with you about Martin Luther King last time? You know, so we'll, we'll cut that out. But, you know, I talk a lot about how moments in the civil rights movement are full of play and singing and joy and laughter. And, and I think that that play is the sustenance. That's what keeps the wrath going. And if you can't do the play and you can't do the wrath, then you are just left with bitterness. And so that, while I understand that that's a vector of emotion that emerges, there are absolutely multitudes of opportunities to engage with different vectors of that emotion in, in historically productive ways. And I had the impulse to say that I wanted to reject capitalism mm -hmm. and its component parts like productivity sure. and efficiency. But I think my impulse to use the word reject was wrong. And I feel like play is the right impulse. You have to acknowledge your object of disappointment. Yeah. And you have to acknowledge its presence. Even and if then, it's micropenis. Right. So, you, have right. to, you have to understand exactly. the presence of the phallus is omnipresent yeah. if quite tiny. And so rejecting it entirely <laughs> is not, it's not useful. But using humor and engaging with it in a in a critical way. Yeah, I mean, that's why I like Sarah Ahmed, and that's why I identify so hard with the feminist killjoy, because the killjoy is about rejecting ideas, and it's, and it's about rejecting harmful ways of interaction. So I was thinking about that night that you and I were at the bar a couple weeks ago, and those dudes were like, hey, can we talk to you about our girlfriends? And I was just like, no, absolutely not, under no circumstances. <laughs> Have a good night. And they were just, like, shocked. Right? I wasn't rejecting them. I don't know who they are. I don't know anything about them. But I was rejecting the kinds of d discourse that they were foisting in a non-consensual way on us as though we were going to do that emotional labor on them. And for our listeners, I think that's an instructive tale because I feel like for me, especially the older that I get, I am very, very good at cutting through that kind of exploitative discourse where I just will reject it a priori as, as a mode of engagement with me. I just will not do it. But also, you know, it takes, I think, a sophisticated rhetor or auditor to understand that that's not a personal rejection of those people. It's a rejection of the form of discourse that they're using. I think about Jay Smooth had a wonderful video a couple years ago about how to engage white supremacist behavior. And he's like, you have to talk about rejecting the behavior, not the person. And I think that that's, that's a hard lesson to hear, a hard message to sell in this particular political climate. Because everybody's like, I'm not going to negotiate with racists, and I don't want to talk to racists, and I hear you, except that I live in the South, and I'm surrounded by white people who don't know anything about anything, and have a ton of outmoded ways of being in the world that are aided and abetted by the fact that they have no resources. So for me, I think that it's lazy to think that people are racist and sexist, and there's no relationship between those two feelings and political associations and capital. That is lazy. That's lazy, lazy thinking. So I think it's okay to reject modes of discourse. I think it's, it's, it's completely reasonable to reject Nazism and the alt-right and lazy thinking and anti-science and other modes of being that are harmful to populations who exist in this place together. That's it's, it's completely reasonable to reject that kind of discourse. But that's not the same as interpersonal rejecting, interpersonally rejecting the person. That's not the same as some sort of interpersonal rejection of the person. That's about the person in a much larger schema of things that they cannot control and mostly that they can't see.
And so the part where, you know, I think the liberal identity politics people somehow can magically see, you know, all of the strings that are pulling and pushing and tugging and maneuvering us through this super brutal capitalist plane is really not the case. They don't see those things and they don't have empathy for others. And I think that they're susceptible to critiques of being elitist, unfeeling, anti-intimacy know-it-alls who refuse to do the dirty work of talking to people who disagree with them and fundamentally think that they are shit in the same way that they do, you know, with with other people. And so there's part of me that, especially because I write about the right and the left so much together all the time, that I feel like uh, they succumb to the same limitations of thought, both the right and the left, and their characterization of the other, which debases them both, and debases their rhetoric for sure, and their politics. So in the parts of the left or the right, such as they are, the places that don't have play, I think, are probably full of rejection and violence and gaslighting and exploitation and are unpleasant places to be. They are dystopian spaces. So I exist outside of those spaces. I try to as much as possible anyway. And to create them when I can inside of predictable public spheres. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.